0: I'm Jared Smith, and an all-new edition of the Carolina Weather Group starts right
1: now. I'm Jared Smith in Charleston. This week on the Carolina Weather Group, we have an all-new episode discussing how the National Weather Service Weather Prediction Center and Storm Prediction Center predict severe flooding events. You probably experienced a recent storm that produced localized flooding where you live. I know we just had one of those in Charleston here today. Uh, so we'll talk with uh, Ashton Robinson Cook. He's a, a Weather Prediction Center meteorologist um, coming up soon. Uh, but first, let me invite you to join us at, uh, this Saturday. Join the Carolina Weather hey, Guys in the museum it, yeah. in, in North Carolina for the weatherproof event. Fun for the whole family. We'll be there for your opportunity to try weather forecasting in front of a real green screen, just like your favorite TV meteorologist. Also have a chance for you to win a NOAA weather radio from Midland, so definitely stop by, uh, stop by the booth there. We're going to be there from ten to ten to four, um, three dollars with your museum admission. We can't wait to see you there. Again, it's a, the Shield, uh Museum in Gastonia, and now an all new edition of the Carolina Weather Group.
0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening. And we're going to be talking with Ashton Robinson, works at the national weather service weather prediction center who uh, issues outlooks for flash flooding and excessive rainfall we're going to be talking about that tonight Uh, i know you've heard us uh, talk about these excessive rainfall outlooks and how they correlate to tropical events here in the carolinas and, and even just heavy rain events so we're going to dive into the statistics and kind of see how those are working out uh with the forecast verification and uh, just um, how effective they are. So Ashton, we're happy to have you this evening. Uh, first question to you, since you're a first time guest, how did you get caught into the weather industry? Like that little time kind of captured your attention. It's like, I wanna go
2: When I was three and a half years old, my mom and I lived in a mobile home in Southwest Little Rock that got hit by a tornado. And the storm picked us up, set us down. And I remember certain items in the, in the mobile home being kind of tossed around and moved around. And so, as you can imagine, as a youngster being hit by that, I was traumatized by weather, but um, over time through junior high and high school it became a passion of mine. And so um, I found a meteorology program at Jackson State that gave me a full scholarship. And so I decided to, to dive right in and I actually got an internship with the weather service then that kind of started my weather career too. Then I went from there to University of Oklahoma, uh, finished my master's and PhD, and then worked at the Storm Prediction Center for a few years. And then moved over from there to the Weather Prediction Center uh, in May 2021.
0: At the Storm Prediction Center, you guys focus on severe weather, fire weather. Um, so, what's that? What's the change been like moving from Norman to College Park, and and still focusing on severe weather? I mean, we all do, but now. You kind of have a broader scale to forecast and to look at
2: from a life standpoint i'm just as busy as i was when i was in oklahoma um and the place is a whole lot more expensive but there's also some really cool uh you know monuments and cultural things that happen around here that i'm really really starting to get immersed with and enjoying um not too long ago i actually drove to new york city which is a lot of fun um and then from the from the the weather forecasting standpoint i actually do similar work for the weather prediction center that as I did for SPC with uh NASA scale discussions for heavy precipitation and so if you can imagine you know forecasting MCSs which was a big part of the, the job at SPC I'm doing the same type of forecasting except for heavy rainfall with the MCSs instead of just the the severe part so so there's some key differences in there but there are also some some a lot of similarities and so I was able to bring my my uh uh, experiences and my research and and uh, forecast experiences and, and skills and all that and step right in and start doing Mesutica discussions. Actually, the first one I wrote was within three days of starting um, because I had so much familiarity with the systems that we use to issue those discussions. And then uh, moving forward, I started uh, issuing the uh, excessive rainfall outlooks a few months ago because of the similarities between that product and what we did at, at the Storm Prediction Center.
0: Yeah, so you're able to kind of tie a lot of things together there from from one office to the next. I'm surprised Andrew didn't jump in here with an OU question. So Andrew,
3: oh, yeah. do you have anything? <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, we miss you here in Norman. Um, I don't know if you remember, but I did a, a job shadow for you uh, for a day back when I was a freshman, I'm senior now. But um, oh, I loved cool. when you came and saw our class, that was a lot of fun. But yeah, I was wondering, with your move from the SPC to the WPC, do you find that you look at a lot of the same model parameters when you're forecasting? Or is it almost like you have to learn different model output, you know, how to read different, you know, different forecasting?
2: That's a very interesting and really detailed question. So uh, with forecasting on the Mesoscale Desk, uh, it's not always models because models don't always get uh, short term uh, convection evolution right. And so sometimes I rely on all the expertise that I built up at SBC to try to predict, you know, MCS movement, propagation, storm propagation. And so there's all sorts of, of variables that go into that uh, forecasting. Uh, instability is one of them. Uh, storm mode is another. Shear is another. Uh, boundaries to kind of focus convection is one that I look at a lot and so there's there's a lot of similarities but I think the biggest difference at wpc is that the ground conditions are critical. And if you have ground conditions that can absorb a lot of water, typically you don't get as much flash flooding or it takes more of an extreme atmospheric event to actually get the water to run off excessively in in you know neighborhoods or streets and, and get the impact. So um, meanwhile, SPC, I noticed, and this is just from my few years as a forecaster there, um, in the West, the monsoon was important, but what they really looked for out in the West was upscale growth of convection in the clusters that kind of move through or swept through a larger region, because that's where you got more of your wind reports and, uh, and impacts, maybe dust storms like in the Phoenix area or something like that. But at WPC, thunderstorms in the western US are critical because they dump a lot of rain in a short amount of time. And because the land surface is a lot less friendly to absorbing water, you can get runoff a whole lot easier out there uh, than you do um, in, in other parts of the country where there's vegetation and different soil characteristics. So so we're the monsoon keeps us far more busy at WPC, uh, both with the mesoscale precipitation discussions and also the outlooks. Uh, compared to uh, when I was at SPC,
3: I was also wondering with those outlooks. I know that computer modeling with uh, you know AI. I don't know if you've heard of NATOCAST, but um, that's really improved over the last few years. And I'm kind of wondering, do, is the SPC and WPC with their outlook forecasts considering using that, or you know what's the future of that?
2: Actually, I'm I'm not 100% familiar with this, but they do use uh, a program from Colorado State. They have a platform that does. Uh, 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 forecasting using AI, uh, that, that really mimics the outlooks actually. But, uh, one of the things we find is that the human's always going to be an important part of that process. So we, we use it, but we use everything else too in our own expertise to, to make forecasts. And so we, you know, we, the, the humans are consistently being those models at, at at almost all timescales. But I do, I'm not exactly familiar with how theirs work, but I do know that it's talked about a lot in, uh, in operations.
0: Talking about these outlooks, uh, the excessive rainfall outlook and the high-risk climatology. Uh, Ashton, I came across this, you and uh, one of your partners there, Alex Lamer. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that last name right, Lamers, uh, mm-hmm. did some research and kind of correlating how effective the high-risk days are uh, on those excessive rainfall outlooks to actually what happened, the ground truth, and, and kind of looking through the data. So um, kind of a twofold question here. A, what was the reasoning behind this research? And then uh, kind of tell us about the project and some of the results from it.
2: When I was training on the excessive rainfall outlook desk to do outlooks regularly, uh, I was kind of struck by how similar the products are to what they issue at SBC with the convective outlooks, but there are also some really important differences too. And because I'm relatively new to focusing on just precipitation and extreme precipitation forecasts, I wanted to take on a project that could help me really get familiarized quickly with, um, you know, ERO frequency, what do high risks mean, uh, geography, spatial geography, seasonality of, of outlooks, if there's a certain time of the year where. The, the higher end outlooks are more frequent than others. And so I picked up this project to try to help me acclimate to the new the new product. And again, one of the key differences I found is that the, there's usually some preconditioning of the atmosphere in some sense to actually get extreme uh, rainfall and flash flooding to occur. So it's not just one rainstorm usually that that produces a lot of the the uh, impacts, unless you're in the western US, usually there's a series or what I call training episodes that help to the kind of focus rainfall in a particular area and then repeat that heavy rainfall over time to to um, to start the flash flooding. So um, so essentially what I found here is that um, in the, the southern and eastern US are the most frequent areas where high risks are concerned. And they actually are a really big deal. Uh, Two fifths of all flash flood-related, uh, all flood-related fatalities occur in high risks, and four fifths of all flood-related damages. Um, my work that I did uh, can go back to 2009, but we decided to focus on 2016, on the 2021 because of the differences in the way the ERO was done further back in time. Uh, but there's a more consistent meteorology that I more consistent methodology for issuing the eros starting from about may 2015 to uh currently so um and essentially what i found is that again the southern u.s and the eastern u.s is is the most active for high risks a lot of them are driven by tropical cyclone landfalls which is not a big surprise there some of the more extreme rainfall rates that occur actually happen with tropical cyclones Um, the carolinas is actually one of the more active regions in the country um compared to most anywhere really um, and it rivals southern california with atmospheric rivers um uh, and, a, and a, the frequency of the high risk actually falls short uh, just a bit to texas and louisiana but you can imagine you know there's there's hurricane harvey that kind of influences a lot of those counts um most of the hotspots or the the capitals of of uh, what i call flood capitals but they're really just hotspots for high risks are actually in texas and louisiana um, and again harvey contributed to about seven uh, high high-risk days in that part of the country so uh, it was a prolific event from all from all metrics all metrics but um, but going back to the carolinas uh, the hurricanes um, i kind count of about maybe uh, eight or nine days of high risks high risk occurring in north carolina and south carolina and the majority of those are driven by Tropical cyclone landfalls, and Florence was a big driver of several of those. It was a slow-moving storm that, that was that was probably the second most prolific uh, rainfall producer uh, by a lot of metrics going back to uh, going back in the past couple of decades.
0: We see these outlooks issued uh, from the Storm Prediction Center, from you all at the Weather Prediction Center. Uh, we see the debate on weather Twitter. Mm-hmm. We won't go into that, but um, how do you? Uh, A, did did any of your research kind of gauge on how the public perceives these outlooks? And B, um, when you all are looking at the setup, what are those deterministic factors saying, well, this is a a marginal or a moderate or a high risk? Like, what goes into that? Help maybe inform the public what you all are looking at uh, on how you issue these four levels of excessive rainfall outlook. And then second of all, have you seen any input from the public on, on how they perceive those and how they act upon those.
2: I tend to look at the project I did and the website that that um, all the data is hosted on is a set of data that helps convey the meaning of the outlooks. What does a high risk mean? When was the last time we had a high risk in a particular area? And so I'm not a social scientist, so I can't necessarily speak to how the outlooks are necessarily translated. That's probably another question for someone else. But what I've been able to do is actually give someone some background on you know, how frequent how risks are in a particular area, uh, and also give them uh, data sets and links so they can actually go and look at specific dates, and then maybe a date will trigger a memory. Oh, I remember. You know, I remember, uh, let's see, I got it up now. I, re- I remember. Uh, September 15, 2018, that was when, you know, Florence made landfall or, you know, something something like that, you know. Um, and so that project is a work in development, and we have some ideas to kind of expand it uh, moving forward. Um, but to your second question about, you know, what goes into high risk, um, again, we're looking for heavy rainfall, but we're also looking for heavy rainfall on susceptible ground conditions. And it's a little different from severe weather, where you know we're mainly looking at the atmosphere and so for severe weather events and making forecasts um, based on what the atmosphere tells us will happen based on what we know about particular environments characteristics of environments and how they'll support storms or not or um, how they'll result in tornadoes or hail or damage of wind gusts. and so there's more to it with uh with uh, the eros because we look at not just the rainfall but you know, are the ground conditions susceptible? Has there been a lot of rain recently to help kind of prime the ground conditions to enhance the ability for rain to run off and not just get saturate in the soils? Um, and those are the big two factors, rainfall on sensitive ground conditions. And the more sensitive the ground conditions and the more extreme the rainfall and or the rainfall rates, the higher the susceptibility is to flash flooding. And the more likely, you get a higher risk category.
0: When you issue these, issue these. How much goes into that local weather forecast office? You know, if it's maybe Columbia or Greenville-Spartanburg or Wilmington or Raleigh, I'm sure you guys have some kind of conversation back and forth. Hey, here's what we're thinking, and they're telling you, well, this is what we see. Is that coordination pretty works pretty well? I'm assuming for you for you all.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Coordination is a huge part of the outlooks. They're they're highly collaborative. And we talk to weather forecast offices all the time when we're introducing new areas, we get their input and their feedback. A lot of times the weather offices are more sensitive to local impacts than we are because our scale of our forecast is different. Uh, we're on the national level and they're on the local level. So sometimes that feedback and that understanding of, of impacts when certain rainfall patterns are showing up in the models for local areas, uh, the feedback that we get from the local offices can be really valuable um but i will throw in too um we don't just talk we don't just collaborate with the forecast offices we have a pretty strong collaboration with the waller center um and there's a team of hydrologists there that we get you know we kind of bounce ideas off and the feedback they have uh wrapping on at flooding models that, that they use for their for- forecast products uh, as well and we also collaborate with uh fema and usgs and the private sector on a variety of uh, forecast issues as well so it's not just the forecast offices, but that's a key part of, of, uh, of collaboration for us with the ROs.
3: So a, a lot of these outlooks are based on, you know, you'll get a 5% tornado risk in maybe a slight risk area, um, and but the chance of those storms developing are low. Whereas you sometimes you have days where there's definitely going to be storms, but the chance of tornadoes with those storms is low. Is there a way that the SPC has looked at conveying that information to the public? Within a risk outlook
2: area, I've been going there for a year. But from what I remember of working there, it, it was just uh, describing things in a discussion, and that was the key uh, aspect. And and it, and it's really difficult because you know you may look at a an outlook with a slighter enhanced. If something happens, it could be really impactful. But the question is, will storms even form? And so, uh, the outlook text was a huge part of describing that. Um, on occasion, I believe. From what I recall, there were maybe like social media posts and, and like not podcasts, but there were like these briefings that, that they put out in mornings sometimes um, that kind of help describe that information and describe the risk as best as possible.
4: In the Carolinas here, we have a lot of different soil types. It's, it's rocky in the mountains. So the soil's fairly absorbent in the Piedmont areas. Then you get into the sandhill regions, and uh, that, that can, uh, that can kind of go both ways depending upon the condition, I guess, and uh, I, I guess that's the way similar to the coastal plain as well. So uh, how does how do you factor that into your forecast when you're thinking about excessive rainfall and flooding potential?
2: I don't look at individual soil types specifically. Um, it'd be difficult to kind of take all that information in while, you know, creating a national forecast, especially on the busier days. Uh, but what I refer to a lot is flash flood guidance that comes from the river forecast offices, if I'm, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, but that can kind of help me quickly synthesize a lot of information about the flood risk profiles in a particular region, uh, and then move quickly to, uh, build out a forecast that way. So I believe the FFGs, the, what we call, as we call them, um, internally, they do take into account the soil types. Um, and what I can tell you about North Carolina is that yes, the hills, the, the hillier terrain, on the western side of the state, are t- is typically a lot more sensitive to uh, uh, heavy rainfall than the lower lying areas, and so I I consider that all the time in you know decisions to write a Mesoscale Precipitation Discussion or you know whether the Outlook an area and a ERO uh, that that certainly comes into play, uh, but what also is Perhaps more important than anything is actually uh, has there been antecedent rainfall to wet the soils, because that can make the eastern part of the state a whole lot more susceptible, and a whole lot more quickly too than than you know just soil conditions alone.
4: Well, uh, Ashton, the uh, the fun questions that I ask are are more uh, to get to know you and uh, your part of the country where you live a little bit better. Uh, so I'll start out by asking you, you know, obviously, you live in the, the D.C. metro area, so obviously, there's uh, a, lot of, a lot of fun historical things to do in that area uh, to look at the, uh, the monuments, uh, maybe uh, go on a tour of, of uh, some of our government buildings there, uh, the federal government buildings. But um, uh, setting that aside, the obvious things to do. Uh, what's something that uh, someone might not think that uh, think of that's uh, a lot of fun to do in that area? That's sort of a, a must do if you're visiting the the D.C. metro area.
2: Well, I may not be the best suited to answer that question just because I've only been here a year, um, but I found it really interesting going to the uh, African American History Museum. Uh, that was deep, and actually, it's such a big museum that it takes two days to go through. At least it did for me. It took. Two separate vents to actually cover all of it, and some of it, some of it was like a, almost like a concert, almost in the in the sense that there was one floor and one section of a floor dedicated to all the music, and the music history, you know, from the the the, the Negro spirituals of the 1800s all the way through the current stuff. And so there's all these these flashbacks for me because I'm looking at you know like rappers in the '90s, you know when I grew up and I was young, and and even going back to the, some of the the spirituals that my mom used to listen to, my aunt used to listen to, uh, some of the gospel music back then. I mean it's just I was just kind of mind blown how awesome that that museum really was. So um, I like the museums a lot. Uh, sometimes I just go to the mall and just walk around, uh, see the sights, get a little exercise. Uh, I I do that. So I love going down to the city.
4: What's your favorite exhibit
2: in the the, uh, History Museum? Oh, goodness, because there's just so many. Um, (laughs) Oh, goodness. I go back to the music one, and it it wasn't just one exhibit. It was just like 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 all the big names, James Brown, Tupac, uh, Missy Elliott, you know, Aaliyah, and just going forward from there, all the big names, and um, I mean, it was just... It just left a real impression. I really enjoyed that aspect of the museum a lot.
4: All right, so uh, in in your area, what is your favorite restaurant? One of my
2: favorites is Tacos, actually. And up the street from me, there's a nice uh, uh, taco restaurant that I'll go and I'll I'll peruse from time to time, but yeah. Listen, there's
0: nothing wrong with tacos. I'm gonna
2: tell you, tacos are amazing. Tacos are my favorite food group. So yeah, if you feed me, tacos will be my friend for a very long time. All right. Since you lived in
4: Norman for a while, I'll ask you what your favorite restaurant in Norman is, well. Since we we have so many people on the show that uh, lived in live or lived in Norman for a while, so uh, I'm curious what you think about
2: that. Tolinos, Tolinos. It's a Mexican restaurant, and you, and uh-huh. you get tacos in there too. But it's a, it, they <laughs> had just moved it from the east side of Norman to the west side where I lived, and so they got quite a few of my coins before I moved out. But <laughs> but yeah, I love uh, Tolinos. Is Probably my favorite in Norman. Yeah,
4: I'll, I'll ask you uh, about uh, Arkansas as well, and uh, what uh, what your uh, what's your favorite thing about uh, about your hometown and 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 about Arkansas and uh, what what you miss most
2: about it. Well, all my family's there, and so I miss being able to see them and only having a six hour drive. Now I have to fly, so it gets a little more complicated to fly home when things happen. So or get home when things happen. Um, but I can tell you, Little Rock is really underrated. Um, in terms of its, its scenery um, and, and beauty. We, we are on the border of the Arkansas River that goes through the central part of the state and empties out in the, in the Mississippi River. Um, and we are home to, when I last checked, it was the world's longest pedestrian bridge that crosses the river from North Little Rock to Little Rock. You can actually take it as a, as a big loop. It's about 10 miles long, and it's a big loop along the river. It's a big river trail. And uh, so I really enjoyed, enjoyed that. And when I take people in to visit from out of town, I usually take them there to kind of have them overlook the river. There's a, a big mountain off to the to the northwest called Pinnacle Mountain that you can see. You can actually hike up it as well, too. Um, but it's just a pretty state. A lot of outdoors activities and things to do. Lots of trees, hills. Um, it's, it's really underrated. I enjoy it. I miss it.
4: Since this is the Carolina Weather Group, I'll ask you if you've ever visited the Carolinas before. Uh, if not, what's a place you'd like to visit?
2: I love the Carolinas. I love the Carolinas. One time, I took a personal trip to Cure Beach, K-U-R-E, just south of Wilmington. And I just loved it. I love North Carolina. And North Carolina reminds me a lot of Arkansas, just maybe a little bigger. Um, Raleigh is, is a bigger city than Little Rock is. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed the the people, the 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 culture. I mean, it's a great state. I love it. I love visiting.
0: Curry Beach is one of the best because it's not commercialized. A lot of beach homes, little communities. It's it's a perfect place. I agree with you there. It's a good spot.
4: Yeah, yeah, I like that area too. I, I visited Ocean Isle Beach and, and Wrightsville Beach a few times, and uh, I, I liked it a lot there. They're they're the quieter beaches. It's uh, you, there's a lot less traffic than. Certainly less than Myrtle Beach and uh, less than Charleston, I think. Too Charleston's still my favorite, but uh, that that area, the Wilmington area, beaches sure are nice too.
0: Well, Ashton, we know you got to get to work, so we appreciate you uh, joining in with us tonight. Uh, as we close out and give you opportunity is, uh, I know you said you had some, a website that you've been working on. Uh, so we wanna give you the opportunity to promote website, social media, whatever that might be. Uh, if folks wanna learn more or find out more, how can they do that?
2: Sure, yeah. So the website that I've been working on, where you can look at a lot of this information and a whole lot more flood safety tips, uh, Alex and I worked on it. It's a uh, WP, uh, right? Well, www.wpc.org dot ncep dot noaa dot gov slash qpf slash eroclimo so that's qpf eroclimo and on there you can go and you can look at all the different stats you can actually mine the data based on your nearest metro area and pull lists of the last time there were high risks uh, dating back to 2016 in your particular area it's also available for states for county warning areas for the national weather service also um, uh, you know, states cbas metro areas yes that's it there's also a list or a couple of lists one of the lists is just for high risk days going back to uh 2010 and the states affected the times they occurred the and the damages and the casualties resulting and then there's another list there that kind of ranks the top 10 metro areas in terms of frequency of flash flood or how risk days Um, and as you can imagine Texas and Louisiana are kind of like one and two mainly because of the hurricane landfalls. but there's some others as well Little Rock shows up on the list uh Gulfport Biloxi Mississippi and then there's several metro areas that are tied uh for number for eight the number one on that list is 19. Uh, so if you have questions there you can actually visit the feedback page or email myself or Alex and uh, we can get more information to you. Um, I know we've actually worked with some ems in South Carolina on uh, some of the lists for their particular state so the information is there it's just a matter of uh, finding it and if we and if it's not there we can work to get it to you. so
0: thank you for joining us and thank you all for watching and listening to us. Be sure to subscribe to Carolina Weather Group on your favorite podcast platform. and Make sure you're hitting the uh, follow button on our YouTube page. That way you get all the latest notifications of all of our new shows coming out. So until next time, we hope you have a great evening and we'll see you back here real soon.